Please pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, your name is to be hallowed and glorified. And Father, this morning we pray that that is indeed what will happen. Lord, we ask that you this morning, the one who has promised to be with us till the end of the age, will encourage, strengthen, and equip the saints this morning to stick to the plan you have given us. Lord, to with all our hearts, soul, minds, and strengths, to love you, to believe you, and to align every aspect of our lives in accordance with your word. God, extend your grace to us this morning and do far greater than we can imagine. And Lord, we pray that you would do these things for your namesake and for your glory. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. This morning's sermon has been entitled, Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. When we come to the book of Joshua, it is important that we understand where we stand in the larger biblical narrative. You see, when God created the world and placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, into the garden, he charged them to live in his cosmic temple as rulers and stewards of his good creation as they were walking in dependence upon him. However, Adam and Eve rejected the voice of the creator God and chose to believe the serpent's lie that the good life could be found apart from dependence upon God. What ensued after this decision was not the good life, rather the entrance of sin and death division, and judgment along with it. Now, by the time we get to Genesis 12, God has started anew with a new man named Abraham, decreeing that Abraham's family would be the means whereby God would deal with all the problems that had been brought into the world by the sin of our first parents. Abraham's descendants would be God's chosen people, to demonstrate what it means to live in a right relationship with the creator God, with one another, and with the creation itself. And it is from Abraham that a seed would come, through whom all the world would be blessed. This family would eventually grow and expand and become a great nation that Egypt would put in bondage afflict with heavy burdens, and then attempt to force an abortive genocide upon in order to stop the seed of Abraham from coming. God then reveals himself to Moses and calls him to deliver the people of Israel through the means of judgment that Yahweh himself would bring upon Egypt. Moses then led the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai where God makes a covenant with Abraham's descendants that was then to be lived out by Israel as a demonstration to the nations while living in the land of Canaan, a land that God promised to Abraham. The land would need to be conquered by Israel. 
and as they lived on dependence upon God to do it. But, like our first parents, Israel did not believe God. And as a result, they were not able to enter into the land. And they were judged to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that unbelieving generation died out. Now here, in the book of Joshua, 40 years have ended. The unbelieving generation has died out. Moses, the man of God, has died. And Yahweh is about to fulfill his plan for the people of Israel to live in covenant with him in the land of Canaan and to further his plan of the coming seed of Abraham. Now the land, like before, was going, was promised, but it was going to have to be conquered by the people living in obedience to God's commands. The land, as before, was full of walled cities, giant men, and warriors. Yet as we read through the book of Joshua, we see that the nation of Israel was able to defeat their enemies, not due to any might of their own, but by living on dependence upon God. They conquered some of the lands under Joshua, but would need to conquer it all. Then they were to live in the land, obey the covenant, and await the coming seed of Abraham, and they were to stick to this plan. The coming seed of Abraham, we are later told in Isaiah 53, would overturn the effects of sin by being the one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon whom the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Who is this seed who suffers for our sins? Well, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16 tells us, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, the promised seed of Abraham, whereby all the nations of the earth should be blessed, has now come into the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has overturned sin and he has established a new covenant in his blood with a new plan for his people, us. What is that plan? We know this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there's a lot of confusion out there today as to what the church of Christ ought to be doing. But in this passage from Matthew we see the clear command of our Lord Jesus, and the command is crystal clear. Preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. This is the plan, and we are to stick to the plan. But just as the nation of Israel faced real enemies whose sole desire was their destruction so as to thwart the plan of God, 
we also, and the coming seed of Abraham, we the new covenant people, face real enemies whose sole desire is to stop the plan of God by keeping the news of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, from spreading. Today's sermon is going to be a survey of a large portion of the book of Joshua. We're going to cover chapters 1 through 11, where we will summarize large sections of the book while at the same time diving into particular portions of the text to answer two questions that I think we, the New Covenant people of God, can learn from the book of Joshua. Those questions are the following. First, how do we stick to the plan of God? And second, what should we expect to occur when we stick to the plan of God? First, how do we stick to the plan of God? We stick to the plan of God by believing, loving, and aligning every aspect of our lives to his word. We stick to the plan of God by believing, loving, and aligning every aspect of our lives to his word. Look at me in Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 6 through 9. God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now notice in this section, you have the, word, the phrase, be strong and courageous. This phrase opens and closes the section. In Joshua's chapter 1 through 5 that was read earlier, we see that Yahweh communicates to Joshua the plan in verse 2. Arise, go over to this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them. And he then assures Joshua in 1, 3 through 4 that all that Yahweh has promised concerning the land, he will indeed accomplish. Then in verse 5, we read the following phrase. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That phrase is the same thing we read in the end of Matthew 28. But notice here, he says, just as I was with Moses. God is drawing Joshua's attention to his interaction with Moses. Joshua was to see and recall God's faithful enabling of Moses to do all that Moses did in leading through the Exodus, the Red Sea, the wilderness, and beyond. He should recall Yahweh's revelation given to Yahweh and his continual presence with Moses. In short, Yahweh is calling Joshua to remember his promises, acts, and deeds when Moses was leading them, and he's telling him, I am going to do the same with you. 
So when we turn and see strong and courageous, we should not think that Joshua is being told here to put his big boy pants on and muster up some courage that he has buried inside of him. That is not it. Rather, what he is being told, he is being called to believe Yahweh. Everything that Yahweh has said and done. So being strong and courageous, therefore, is the result of believing God. And Joshua is being called to do just that. Notice also he says, be careful to do according to all the law. Now this phrase follows strong and courageous in verse 7. And it precedes it in verse 8. Signifying something about what it means to be strong and courageous. Now, the word that's being used here might be translated careful, keep, or observe. It is translated in Exodus 20, verse 6, as keep. But notice what happens here in this pat in that section. Yahweh says that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep or are careful to do my commandments. Now, notice how keep my commandments is parallel with those who love me. What well, indicates here that those who keep the commandments do so because they pay attention to them. And they pay attention to them because they love God. And loving God is keeping his commandments. So being careful to do according to the, all the law is a demonstration of one who loves God. Demonstrated by the fact that they pay attention to God. And the one who pays attention to God is the one who believes God. Now notice the actions in the middle here of the one who is careful to do. Acts that are demonstrations of a love for God. Concerning the law, Yahweh says to him, do not turn from it to the right or to the left. So turning right or left is essentially the idea of not turning away from Yahweh to idols. You see, just as a husband and wife should not turn to the right or left of their spouse to another, but be singularly devoted to them, so too must the man or woman of God demonstrate love for God by being singularly devoted to God. They don't turn to anything else. He also says to him, the law shall not depart from your mouth. It is on your mouth. It indicates that it's always on your lips, even if it is not explicit. You see here, the man of God is somebody who is to be influenced completely by the word of God, even in their speech and everything else that is to follow. He also says here, meditate on it day and night. A phrase we also see in Psalm 1, right? Dale Ralph Davis, in commenting on this passage, says the following. Constant careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. Lack of study results in lack of obedience. Let me say that again. Constant careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. Lack of study results in lack of obedience. Life in the kingdom of God must be lived out of the word of God. Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 alike tell us that a life pleasing to God does not arise from mystical experiences or warm feelings or from a new gimmick 
advocated in a current release from our evangelical publishers. No, it comes from the word God has already spoken and from obedience to that word, unquote. Singular devotion marked by careful absorbing of God's word that aligns every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, speech, actions, how we manage the resources that God has given us is not merely the outward demonstration of, a, of a, our devotion to God. It also helps to fuel our love for God. So to stick to the plan of God, the man or woman of God must believe, love, and align every aspect of their lives to God's word. Now notice the results here of such a life. In verse 7 and 8, he says, You may have good success and your way will be prosperous. Now what does this mean, success, prosperity? Does this mean in success or prosperity in anything you do or want? No. It is success in God's plan. Notice again in verse 6, You shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, the Lord is reminding Joshua of the plan. The plan is to conquer the land. It is specific and clear, and success in that plan will only occur if it is carried out according to Yahweh's word through the one who believes, loves, and aligns himself with that word. Likewise, Jesus in the Great Commission has told us, the New Covenant people, the plan. We're to preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. It's specific and it's clear. It is carried out by the obedience to the word of God. And that word is clear and our being successful in the plan comes when we believe, love, and align ourselves to it. Notice here also that success does not mean a lack of hardships. When you survey Joshua chapter 6 through 11, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the nation of Israel faces increasing and intense opposition. Furthermore, in those same chapters, though it is not explicitly mentioned anywhere other than in chapter 7, it is likely that people, the people, that some of these warriors of Israel died in trying to accomplish God's plan. In the New Testament, we see the same thing, don't we? Christians are persecuted. The apostles are martyred. The survey of church history reveals the same sorts of things. And it's important to note this. The standard of measurement for success is faithfulness to align with the plan that God has given us. Again, the standard of measurement for success is faithfulness to align with the plan that God has given us. And God has given us a plan. It's specific and it's clear. We are to preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. And we are to do that. We are to stick to it. And how do we stick to it? By believing, loving, and aligning every aspect of our lives to his word. Now, what then should we expect to occur when we stick to the plan? There are two things I think I'd like to observe from the text here. One is we should expect the divine appointments of salvation. And the other is divine appointments of judgment. 
So we are told in Leviticus 18 about the people who dwell in the land of Canaan. They are described as the following. They are adulterous, homosexual, practice sexual relations among family, unnatural relations with animals, and they offer up their children in fire sacrifices. In Deuteronomy 12, Moses says the following concerning the nation that is in Canaan, warning the people of God to not be like them. And he says this in verse 31, For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Now notice those two phrases, for and to their gods. The abominable practices that are outlined in Leviticus 18 are practices that are specifically tied to their idol worship. It is their religion, if you will. Now look at me at chapter 12, or 2, verses 1 through 2. We are told, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, important to note, Rahab is one of the people of the culture. She is an idolater who practices prostitution, and she is a participator in a cultural system that utilizes sex as the highest form of human satisfaction and identity. You see, Joshua, like Moses before him, is now telling the spies to go into the land and obtain information, especially from Jericho. And it is in this specific command to spy out Jericho that we see a providential moment of God's grace and a divine appointment of salvation. Look in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Before the spies lay down for night, she, the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and, will, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now, I want you to notice what Rahab has heard about the Creator God. She has heard about the salvation of God's people through judgment on mighty Egypt. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. She has heard about the salvation of God's people through judgment on Sihon and Og. We have heard how you have devoted them to destruction. The I would argue here that she is also along with the people in the land, heard of the revelation of Yahweh, specifically here in the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to notice the phrase in verse 10 when she says completely destroyed. 
This phrase will also come up later in the book of Joshua in chapter 9, verse 24, where the Gibeonites say, It was told to your servants for certainty, notice this, that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to do what? To give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants, inhabitants before you. Now the passage the Gibeonites are likely re referencing is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, where Israel's commanded to do just that. There are good indications, therefore, that the people in the land, including Rahab, were familiar with and had heard of the law of Yahweh. Now notice also the responses of Rahab as well as the nations when they hear. In chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, she says, The fear of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit in man because of you. In chapter 5, verse 1, we see the same phrases repeated regarding nations. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, we're introduced to Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, and it concludes by saying he feared greatly. You see, the idea here is that of the inner man, one's soul or being. It is overcome with discouragement, fear, doubt, and a lack of courage at the thought of Yahweh. And the word used, melt, here is the same word we see used in other places of what happened to the manna when the sun came out and grew hot. What happened? It melted. It disappeared. It literally ceased to exist. You see, these people, men hearing of the words and deeds of Yahweh, ceased to have any courage. They were afraid, and this included Rahab. Now notice her response. I know the Lord has given you the land in verse 9. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In verse 11. In verse 13, deliver our lives from death. You see, Rahab's confession Yah recognizes Yahweh as the creator and ruler of all creation. And she recognizes that she is under judgment of this creator God, and that it's going to happen. Notice she says, Yahweh's given you the land. This is going to happen. Deliver our lives from death. You see, this act of faith also, as we see in the earlier part of the chapter, motivates Rahab's actions as she hides the spies and sends them out safely on another way. We see the same thing that James tells us in the book of James. In 2.14, God gives Rahab's assurance she will be saved. In, in 6.23, when the walls are destroyed, God demonstrates his salvation to Rahab, interestingly, by saving her in the very place where his judgment initially falls, the walls of Jericho, where her house is. Rahab's story reveals to us that Yahweh saves a people from his judgment who acknowledge him as the only one who can save them from that judgment. Additionally, Rahab will serve as a model response in the book of Joshua as we go through and see how the rest of the nations respond. So we, the new covenant people, have been given God's plan. We're to preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. And like the nation of Israel... We need to expect that in fulfilling that plan, Yahweh has divine appointments of salvation. People 
will believe. What else will happen when we stick to the plan of God? There will be divine appointments of judgment because the nations will rage against Yahweh and his anointed. Now remember, what have the nations heard? They've heard, just like Rahab, the salvation uh, of God on his people through over Egypt, over Sihon and Og, even words from the word of God. So as we go through this, we'll see that some nations receive even more revelation. But all the nations, remember, respond the same way that Rahab does. There's fear upon them. Their hearts are melting away. There's no spirit left in them, and they are afraid. One might think that they, like Rahab, would respond the same, but they don't. In Joshua 6 through 11, we'll see five different nations or city-states that are raging against God, each who pose a different challenge, but all have the same goal, to get the people of God to disobey the plan of God. So let's look at Jericho chapter 2 and also in chapter 6. So in 2, verses 3 and 7, we see that Jericho has heard all the same things, and how are they responding? Well, they're trying to capture the spies. Now, what they're trying to do, it's not, it's not clear. Maybe they're trying to catch them and offer them as some sort of bait for a negotiation. Either way, there is no doubt, and it's clear, given their behavior as a whole, that they are attempting in some way to stop Israel from fulfilling God's plan. Notice in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of, of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Jericho is digging in their heels for the long holdout. They, and this, despite the fact that they have mighty men of valor. You'll notice that phrase there. That phrase is used to describe people of an army who are mighty and strong. Now, Jericho is digging in their heels. They are utilizing their best asset, the walls, which are likely five to six feet thick and 17 feet tall. Now, given that Israel had no siege weapons, they probably looked out and thought, we, we'll, we'll wait this out, we will win. They are playing what we call the waiting game. They're attempting to stall Israel. They know the clear command that God has given Israel, and they neither want to fight nor do they want to repent. They are trying to wait Israel out, hoping that Israel will get frustrated, impatient, and give up on God's plan of conquering the land and devoting all to, to destruction. When preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches, we should expect at some point to face opposition that employs the waiting game. They know the clear commands of God, and instead of repenting, they are going to use tactics meant to stall, frustrate, make us weary, and give up on the plan. When this happens, we must stick to the plan. In Joshua 7, chapter 7 and verse 8, we're introduced to another foe, Ai. Now, Israel faces Ai in battle in chapter 7, and they are defeated due to their sin, or the sin of Achan in particular, that he brought into the camp. 
I'll make some brief comments about this later, but my point now in bringing them up is just to talk about the mindset of AI as they come out to battle Israel in the first place. You see, AI was a small town, and it's the only opponent mentioned in chapters 1 through 11 that does not have a warrior, troops, army, or anything like a horse or chariot. They are a town described as few in number, and it's in this way that they stand in total contrast to everybody else that is mentioned in the book of Joshua. Now, they've heard all the same revelations of Yahweh that Rahab heard. They have had their hearts melted. Additionally, they have the reality of Yahweh's judgment staring them in the face at the destruction of their neighbor Jericho next door simply by Israel walking around it for seven days. They probably knew that. But do they repent? No. See, when preaching, they come out to fight instead. So when preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches, we should expect at some point to face opposition that is completely unreasonable to anything. They hate God, they love their perversions like AI, and they will listen to nothing God has to say, whether it is the special revelation of his word or even the general revelation of something like the, their biology in our day, staring them in the face. And when they come at us, they will come with the only thing they have, violence. When these things happen, we must not waver we must stick to the plan. In Joshua chapter 9, we're introduced to a different foe, the Gibeonites. Now, in Joshua chapter 10, verse 2, Gibeon is described as a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Now, the word royal city here is referencing the fact that Gibeon was actually a powerful city, state, or in the region, which makes sense because all their warriors, all their men were warriors. They were a fighting sort of city-state, if you will. They heard all the same revelations of Yahweh that Rahab heard. They've also seen Jericho and Ai. Surely they will repent also, right? Well, let's look at 9, 3 through 6. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn out and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly, and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now, interestingly enough, to Gibeon's credit, they had the resources to fight. All their men are warriors, and they had the opportunity to join a coalition we see forming in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. But they didn't do either. What did they do? You see, the Gibeonites came with cunning and deception attempting to convince the Israelites that they were not the Hivites of the land who were under the ban of Deuteronomy 7, a ban they are well aware of and even quote later in the chapter. They give the appearance that they believe Yahweh in 9 through 10. 
they express that they have a desire to be a part of the plan in verse 11. But this confession, as it turns out, is false. Joshua describes them not as Rahab, but notice how he describes them in verse 22 and 23 as deceivers and those who are cursed. Now, why would they do such a thing? They didn't want to experience Yahweh's judgment, nor did they want to repent and know his mercy. They did, however, want to remain in the land, even if they were to do so as willing servants. You see, this is not real repentance. It's not the same thing we see with Rahab. There is no humility that acknowledges who they are. In fact, when Joshua confronts them with this, in verse 7, they say they lie and say that they are from a distant country. They are not who they, who they really are. See, repentance for the Gibeonites would have been the same as Rahab. They should have confessed Yahweh, been honest about their sin and who they were, what they deserve, seek mercy, and get on board with God's plan. But that's not what they do. They demonstrate a lack of repentance for their sins, and they show that their actions display a people who are being cunning and deceiving of the nation of Israel. Why? To keep them from obeying the clear command that they've been given. You see, when preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches, we should not be surprised when we encounter those who did join us or want to join us, but who are subtly working to encourage disobedience to the clear command and plan of God. When this happens, we must stick to the plan. In Joshua chapter 10, the opposition grows. There's a five-army coalition that occurs. And in Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to a king who's pulling together this coalition. And there's really something quite interesting about him. He has heard all the same revelations thus far, but there's something additional and internal to his culture and history that is important to note. Now, notice his name in chapter 10 is Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Where have we heard Zedek and Jerusalem before? Well, in Genesis 14, some 400 years prior, we were introduced to a king from Jerusalem whose name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And he is described in Genesis 14 as a priest of God Most High. And he comes out in Genesis 14 to bless Abraham and to bless the plan. Given that Adonai Zedek, which literally means the Lord is righteous, it seems that the influence of King Melchizedek, even though he's been dead for many years, remains even if it's just a cultural memory. And one might think that Adonai Zedek, like his ancestor, would know that he should come out and bless the descendants of Abraham and affirm God's plan. Instead, he pulls together an army to kill the descendants of Abraham and to stop God's plan. When preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches, we should expect and not be surprised to encounter those who once used to agree with us and who once used to bless us, but will now coalesce power to get us to disobey the clear command of God. When this happens, we must stick to the plan. 
finally, in chapter 11, we meet the largest opposition thus far. Now, these, these folks are even more interesting. They've heard all the same revelations that Rahab has heard. They've also heard about Jericho, Ai, the Gibeonites, and the five army coalition of the south. Although all these judgments displayed God's might, this coalition witnessed something yet unseen by anybody else in the text thus far. So back in chapter 10 on the five army coalition, I would encourage you to read that. It is astounding what Yahweh does. The five army coalition is defeated by Israel after they march overnight for 20 miles and get in a fight first thing as they get there. They then fight them for another 24 hours over another long distance, and God aids them by causing the sun to stand still for a day while also heaping hailstones upon his enemies. In Joshua 10:11, we're told there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, surely, surely, like Rahab, they would believe, right? What more do they need? Well, in Joshua 11:4 through 5, what do we see them doing? They're amassing troops, so many troops. It's called a great Horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. Not only that, they are pulling together every bit of military technology, that advanced military technology they can find. It says they have very many horses and chariots, would have, which would have been the most advanced thing. In our day, that would be like saying they have Tomahawk missiles, surface-to-air missiles, tanks, M1 Abram, 50 caliber machine guns, and fifth-generation fighters. And they believe this power somehow pressed upon Israel is going to stop the plan of God. When preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches, we should expect at some point to face opposition that yields the most advanced powers and capabilities known to a nation state so as to stop the church from following our Lord's plan. When this happens... What do we do? We stick to the plan. God has given us a plan. It is specific and clear. We are to preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. When this occurs, we should expect God to do some things. There will be divine appointments of salvation and, unfortunately, divine appointments of judgment. Now, what do we do with this? I'd like to offer three points of application this morning. Number one, for those who are here who may not be a Christian, I want to say to you, repent and believe the gospel. So perhaps you're here today and you recognize that you are like those who oppose God and oppose his plan. To you, I would say the following. Look at Rahab and do the same. Recognize the God that the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, only God. And that you are a sinner under his judgment. Repent. Stop resisting God's plan. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then get on board with the plan. 
If you don't know what to do, I would encourage you to grab somebody here. This church is loaded with godly, faithful people who would love to share the gospel with you of the one true and only God. To the rest of us, I would say this as a bit of application. Take your sin seriously and don't neglect the reading, studying, and meditation of Scripture and prayer. You see, all the enemies that Joshua faced were defeated. However, there are a few instances in chapters 1 through 11 where Israel failed to stick to the plan, and they were big-time failures. We think about chapter 7 with Ai, where they were defeated by a very small town, and people died. We think of Gibeon in chapter 9, where we're told that the elders did not seek counsel from the Lord. They didn't seek counsel from the Lord. And so they were deceived into something that they should not have been. But in both instances, you will notice that it was a failure to deal with the immediate issue and temptation that was in front of them by sticking to the plan and by seeking the Lord in his word and prayer. So I would say today, we need to discipline ourselves to read, study, and meditate on the scripture daily. Pray daily. Block off concentrated times in your day. Don't just throw it in when you can. Set it. I'm going to do it then and keep to it. Pray often. Pray daily. Memorize scripture. Get a friend and memorize together. Recite the scripture as you're driving to work. When you're at work, think, man, what does the Bible say about how I can fulfill God's plan here at work? If you have sinned, repent. Believe God and move forward. You see, God knew his people would face temptation, and God knew that his people would face opposition that would bring hardship and suffering. And he told them beforehand how to handle it. In Joshua 1, 6 through 9, believe, love, and align every aspect of your life to God's word. The second thing, keep the plan at the forefront of your mind. Don't forget the plan. Think of everything that you do, whether it is our marriages, our families, our work, school, or the management of the things that God has given us, and ask the question, how and can I fulfill the plan in these areas of my life? You see, the book of Joshua itself opens and ends with the same thing, a funeral. <laughs> Moses' death is recorded in chapter 1, and Joshua's death is recorded in chapter 24. Just as the death of Moses symbolizes a new generation moving Israel forward, so too does the death of Joshua. However... The changing of generations does not change the plan of God. Israel is still to conquer and cleanse the land and live in covenant with Yahweh, awaiting the coming seed of Abraham. For us, the new covenant people of God, the seed of Abraham has come and he has given us his plan. Preach the gospel and establish healthy churches until he comes. 
Generational change will come and go. Societal needs and demands will arise and fall. And until our Lord comes, the nations will continue to rage. But the plan remains. Preach the gospel and establish healthy churches. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The plan is clear and it has all the resources of the one true living God behind it, guaranteeing its success. May God grant us here at Kenwood Baptist Church the grace needed to stick to the plan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder from your word. And Lord, that these things have been written as examples that we might learn and that we might learn to be faithful to you. God, we ask that your word would fall, that the seed would bear much fruit in our lives, and that we at Kenwood Baptist Church would be a people who believe, love, and obey and align every aspect of our lives with the word of God, and that we stick to your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.